Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children. Welcome to the Rebel Mothers Podcast. I'm your host, Susie Fishleader, and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation. Hello. So in today's episode of Rebel Mothers, we're going to be discussing Rianne Eisler's work around dominator and partnership societies, and then how we can apply these models to our own families as rebel mothers. And I really love the partnership family model because I think, you know, in all of these different systems that shape motherhood that I talk about, you know, patriarchy and racism and capitalism, these are all systems of domination. So the root problem inherent in all of these systems of oppression is that they are systems of domination. So when we identify them, the partnership family model offers actual solutions and ideals instead of just offering critiques. Because sometimes it feels like, you know, all these topics that I cover, like patriarchy and white supremacy, they seem so big, so entrenched, it feels impossible to overcome, which is really convenient for these structures, isn't it? But when I'm able to identify a, a model of inspiration and I can create actionable tasks for my own family, I feel like I'm actually affecting change. And taking inspiration from this partnership family model is a really effective way to get started. So today I'm going to cover what the difference between dominator and partnership societies and family models are. I'll give specific examples for each, and then we'll talk about the actions you can take to start living in a partnership family today. So what is a dominator and a partnership society? Again, this work comes from the brilliant Rianne Eisler. She's the author of books like Chalice and the Blade, The Real Wealth of Nations, Tomorrow's Children, and many more. And on a personal note, Chalice and the Blade is probably one of my top 10 most transformational books I've ever read. She's the president of the Center for Partnership Systems, and a lot of the information I'm going to present today comes from their website. So I'm going to link all of the stuff in the show notes if you are inspired by this work and want to learn more. So Eisler describes a spectrum of behaviors in dominator and partnership societies, which is also a helpful visual because, as we know, nothing is truly binary or black and white. There's always a range. So as Eisler explains it, dominator systems look like an authoritarian structure of ranking and hierarchies of domination in family, economics, and society. This shows up in the family where children might grow up in authoritarian, punitive, often male-dominated families where they observe and experience inequity as the norm. It can include relationships with a high degree of fear and violence, from child and wife beatings to abuse by superiors and family, workplaces, and society as required to maintain these rankings of domination. Dominator societies insist on rigid binary gender stereotypes with you know, quote-unquote masculine traits and activities like toughness and conquest ranked over 
quote, feminine traits like caregiving and nonviolence in all people and in social and economic policy. And these dominator societies have beliefs and tell stories that justify, idealize, and normalize domination and violence. On the other end of the spectrum, partnership societies look like democratic structures and hierarchies of actualization that empower people rather than disempower. Caring and care work is economically valued. Egalitarian and equitable adult relations are the norm. Parenting is not authoritarian, but authoritative and nonviolent. There's a low degree of fear, abuse, and violence in relationships as they're not needed to maintain these top-down rankings. And there is universal respect for diversity and human rights. Instead of insisting on a rigid binary, partnership societies celebrate fluid, non-binary gender roles so that difference is not equated with you know, superiority versus inferiority or dominating versus being dominated. And this inclusive, equitable view of differences in our species provides a model for relations not based on you know, in-group, like the in-crowd versus out-crowd thinking. Right? There's a high value placed on empathy, caring, caregiving, and nonviolence in all people as well as in social and economic policy. And finally, the stories and narratives that we have in a partnership society recognize our human capacities for negative behaviors, but emphasize empathetic, mutually beneficial, nonviolent relations and present them as normal, moral, and desirable. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> I want to live there. So there is historical precedent for all of these, right? Eisler didn't create these societies out of thin air. She didn't imagine them. They're not fantastical or, or pretend or utopian. She really roots her work in societies that exist today and also existed thousands of years ago. Her book, Chalice and the Blade, tracks the movement from originally existing partnership societies to the dominator societies that we too often see today. Eisler draws evidence from archaeology, mythology, art, religion, and sculpture that strongly suggests that humans lived in relative peace and harmony with gender and glass equality, worshiping nature as a female deity until only about 6,500 years ago. It was then, according to archaeologist Maria Gimbutas and other researchers, that the dominator culture took over, spreading west and south from Eastern Europe and eventually conquering most of the planet. Now, Eisler is clear that no society is a pure domination or a partnership system. It is always a matter of degree, depending on where society falls on the partnership domination social scale. And we're very used to thinking, like creating social categories that fall into binaries, right? We have Republicans and Democrats, Eastern and Western, male or female, black or white. But as we know, even these binaries aren't accurate. There's a spectrum to be found in all of them. So there's no one society that exists today or has existed historically that falls into all dominator or all partnership. But there are examples we can look to for both. Looking at some recent repressive and violent societies, whether it's secular, like Hitler's rightist Germany, Stalin's leftist USSR, and then leftist North Korea, or fundamentalist religious cultures like the Taliban and ISIS, or other fundamentalist religious cultures, even though these cultures are all wildly different from each other, in all these societies, they share ideal norms in both family and state for top-down authoritarian rule a high degree of abuse and violence, and rigid male dominance. 
We can contrast these two examples of partnership societies. Some contemporary examples, you know, from both sides of technological spectrum. On, on one side, you've got indigenous societies like the Indonesian Menengkabau and the Chinese Mosu, both of which are matrilineal, and then technologically advanced societies like Swin Sweden, Finland, and Norway, who consistently top lists of gender equality, happiness, and health of their citizens. So why do I like this model? Again, I think the partnership and domination systems, they're really holistic categories that encompass all facets of human existence, and they pay particular attention to findings from neuroscience showing the impact of what children experience and observe on brain development, and so therefore how we think, feel, and act, including how we vote when we grow up to be adults. So a lot of times in my, you know, my feminist circles, I hear things like, smash the patriarchy and burn the systems to the ground. But it doesn't continue on to address the follow-up question, which is, well, what comes next? I think it's really easy to criticize the existing systems. It's much harder to offer a blueprint on how we actually go about shaping the society we want to see. What I love about Eisler's work is she's actually offering a blueprint here. So Eisler's work on dominator and partnership systems, she explores these four essential cornerstones for shifting away from the legacy of domination to build the partnership systems needed to support human thriving and the survival of our planet. So the four cornerstones are family and childhood relations, gender relations, economic relations, narratives, and language. Today I'm going to focus on family and childhood relations, but really all of these cornerstones are important. So let's take a look at how the dominator and partnership models can be applied to family structures. So Eisler stressed the importance of a partnership family model in her book, The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. She says, quote, partnership families are of particular importance in determining whether the institutions of a society are authoritarian and equitable or democratic and equitable, end quote. She went on to describe that they're not totally democratic, right? Parents are still responsible for making important decisions and creating limits and expectations. Quote, from the start, children are respected in partnership family structures and their caregivers are attuned to their needs and wants, end quote. So before I get into the actions you can take to nurture a partnership family model in your own home, I wanna provide some context and definition for two terms I'm gonna use, again, based on Eisler's work. And she calls these the hierarchy, okay, this word is hard to say. She calls them the hierarchies of actualization and the hierarchies of domination. Hierarchies aren't inherently dominator organized, but they can be. Hierarchies of domination reinforce the dominator system where those on top control those below them. There are only two modes of relating to people in these systems, right? You're either being dominated or you're dominating. Hierarchies of domination can be found in families, workplaces, and society at large. And economic policies in this system are designed to benefit those at the top at the expense of those on the bottom. The whole system is held together by fear and by force. In a partnership society, you'll find hierarchies of actualization. Someone still needs to be like in charge or the person people go to for questions and advice. And so in this system, people at all levels work together with mutual respect and support. And then the more experienced, wiser, and skilled persons can help less experienced and skilled persons acquire capabilities that they initially lack. Leaders and managers inspire and empower rather than control and disempower people. 
economic policies are set up to support and prioritize everything that supports and advances human survival and development, including creativity, caring, empathy, you know, concern for human welfare and the environment. It's not about providing profits to the people at top at the expense of people on bottom. It's prioritizing anything that we need to ensure the survival and thriving of the human race. So hopefully you can start to see how this model, a hierarchy of actualization, put into practice in a family is in direct opposition to the traditional, you know, patriarchal nuclear family model where the father's at the head of the household and responsible for making family decisions. Let's start discussing specifically what a partnership family model with hierarchies of actualization would look like. First of all, a partnership family is one that is democratic and egalitarian. And I realize that initially this sounds like a disaster, right? We have three children. So if it came to a democratic vote on whether we're going to have like a veggie lasagna or ice cream for dinner, my husband and I would be outvoted and we would have ice cream for dinner every single night. So it's not a democracy like, like that. In a partnership family, parents are still responsible for children, but they employ the hierarchy of actualization. And their actions and decisions are based on supporting and empowering the family, not controlling through fear, punishment, or domination, right? Parents still have to make important decisions for children. They guide them. They teach them limits and expectations. But all members of the family are considered of equal worth. So in that earlier example, like what are we going to have for dinner tonight? We have conversations about like feeding our bodies food that makes us feel good, you know, eating real food that comes from the earth and not like super heavily processed or sugar food. We talk about honoring the people who farmed the food that we that we eat kind of thing. It's all very inspirational. This is like what I aspire to be. This is not how conversations in my house actually go down, but this is what I would like them to be. So it's a whole conversation on, you know, where we're teaching and guiding the children into making these healthy choices for their for themselves. So children are really, they're respected in a partnership family. It's not like, you know, you eat this because that's what I told you or, or shaming them. Like, don't be ridiculous. You can't have ice cream for dinner. That's so unhealthy. It's just, we are, parents and caregivers are attuned to the needs and the wants of children and they're respected. But as they grow older, they're encouraged to take on more responsibility and think for themselves, right? And then parents are just still responsible for helping to, to guide and teach. So... Let's actually put this into practice. Let's say my teenage son wants to pick up another sport. He's the kind of kid who wants to do everything. He's, you know, he just wants to be involved in all of it. But let's say he's already doing two after-school activities. So a dominator family structure might have a parent say, well, of course he can do the sport. He's the oldest and he's a boy and we need to make sure he grows up to be a strong leader and sports can teach him that. Or maybe a dominator family structure could say, no, you can't do that sport. There's too much on the family calendar and we just don't have the time. But a partnership family conversation might sound like this. That's a great idea. I know how much you'd love to try new things and I can tell this feels important to you. We've already committed a lot of activities as a family though. So let's talk at dinner tonight and see if we can come up with a solution. Then all the members of the family can discuss and be heard. And, you know, maybe another sibling is feeling like the oldest is already getting too much time. They can comfortably bring that up without fearing that they're going to get yelled at or they're going to be shut down for expressing vulnerability. If the family decides that there's just too much going on and now the oldest kid feels really disappointed about not getting to do this activity, 
those feelings are gently acknowledged and they're validated and space is given for him to express those feelings without being told to stop whining and be grateful for what he has. So you can start to see how these decisions are made in partnership with the family and not the parents just top down saying it's going to be this way because that's just how it is and that's what I say it is, right? And yeah, this is way easier to do with older kids, right? I think I think it's age seven around then that children have that ability to really cognitively process like reasoning and logic. It's really hard to tell a four-year-old, no, I get that. So there are age-appropriate ways to have these conversations and parents will need to take more of a a guiding and teaching role when they're younger, but by modeling these conversations, as the children get older, yes, they get easier and they get better at participating democratically. Now, another core component in a partnership family is equal partnership between men and women. And of course, not all families have a a male and female head of house, but whatever your family's structure, roles and responsibilities for maintaining the house and caring for each other are shared equally regardless of gender. So all men and women who are members of the household carry the children, nurture them, encourage them, show them empathy and kindness, and practice gentle communication. There's no ranking or priority given to members of the house who work for pay outside the home, and everyone's talents are celebrated. In practice, this might look like the family, you know, taking that seemingly endless list of household tasks And instead of just assuming that mom is going to take care of everything, they divide it up so everyone feels fair about it. Children are included to model equality and also to encourage responsibility and independence. If other adults live nearby and can help out, you know, maybe grandpa can pick the kids up from school. Or maybe there's Aunt Sarah, who's actually your friend from work. Maybe she can take the kids out to a fun activity on the weekend. Right? Maybe the oldest child is asked to help cook dinner occasionally and the youngest child is responsible for emptying the dishwasher, regardless of their gender. And finally, a partnership family prioritizes beliefs and stories that offer a balanced and positive view of human nature. So stories of cruelty, violence, and oppression are recognized as human possibilities, but they're not considered inevitable to human nature or something that's ordained by a higher power. So cultural values and beliefs support empathic and mutually respectful relations. The family invests more in positive human motivations instead of negative. Creativity is encouraged, and there's a conscious inclusion of partnership-themed stories, myths, and religious religious texts that include a divine feminine as equally as important as a divine masculine. So in practice, this might look like going through your books and your movies that your family watches and and absorbs. Um, If you're a religious family and consistently attend church, you might want to examine the stories your children hear and beliefs that they are taught and discuss as a family why these choices may or may not be appropriate to the values of a partnership family. One of the workshops that I run is called the Revolutionary Mothering Manifesto, which helps mothers identify their personal and family values and it helps them clearly state an intention and a commitment to shifting to a partnership family model, which helps to affect change in the institution of motherhood as a whole. And I want to address something that's brought up to me occasionally, especially since I use the words mother and mothering instead of parent and parenting, 
right? If we're attempting to create a partnership family model, why don't we use parenting? Shouldn't both parents have a say in creating this partnership family or creating a manifesto? You know, why do I place such an emphasis on the mother? Doesn't that just reinforce gender binaries and old stereotypes about like the uninvolved father? And trust me when I say I think about this all the time. (laughs) And my answer will probably continuously evolve. But I always go back to a few key points. Adrienne Rich reminds us of the importance of the mother in upholding cultural systems of domination when she wrote her book of Woman Born. And I'm going to read part of it here. Quote, Certainly the mother serves the interest of patriarchy. She exemplifies in one person religion, social conscience, and nationalism. Institutional motherhood revives and renews all other institutions. End quote. So, like it or not, women are still the primary or even sole providers of nutrition, health, love, and care for children in most of the world. Mothers have an enormous influence on the children and the family. So, one way to improve the experiences of mothering is to have the mother intentionally model and shape a partnership family. And as with other oppressive systems, the impetus for change often lies first with the one oppressed. Indeed, if it is the mother who creates the manifesto that changes the dynamic of the family and the home, that could be seen as an act of defiance to the system of patriarchy, which places the expectation of leading the family directly onto the father. And I do believe that there is a place for the entire family to have a say in creating a family manifesto, right? A dedication to treat the family as a micro community in which all individuals participate. But I think it is still worthwhile to have the mother lead the way in the revolution, that's why this podcast is called Rebel Mothers, uh, because at the end of the day, I'm a mother, and since it's the role I'm the most familiar with, I'm going to speak from a place of authority in that role. Okay, now, there are a few more resources I want to mention about creating a partnership family, and I'm, I'm going to link them in the show notes too. So first of all, there's a Caring and Connected Parent Guide, which is published by the Center for Partnership Systems. It's a short, it's a really accessible handbook to guide partnership parenting in the early years from birth to age four, and it offers very clear and helpful actions that both parents can take in connecting with their little one to help nurture a lifelong healthy relationship. I found a lot of parallels in the guide, in in this guide, to the work that I was doing when I was holding infant massage education classes, right? We talked a lot in circle about the importance of loving touch that supports bonding and attachment, and that's reinforced in this caring and connected parent guide. Another resource is the eight C's of a partnership family. This is created in 2015 by Julie de Azevedo Hanks, and it is based on Rianne Eisler's cultural transformation theory. Uh, Hanks, she takes partnership principles and brings them home by providing a practical framework for transforming families. She's organized them into eight C's, Cooperative adult leadership, connecting orientation, caretaking emphasis, collaborative roles and rules, celebration of masculine and feminine contributions, compassionate communication, conscious language usage, and creation and collection of partnership stories. So I'll link to a handy PDF in the show notes that describe the features for each of these. But just to detail a few, the partnership family The partnership model of family organization includes behaviors like what we talked about, mutual decision-making. You know, caring is a highly valued trait with all members participating in this caring. 
There's fluidity in gender expectations. So an integration of the so-called you know, masculine and feminine are recommended for every individual. Uh, peaceful communication skills, conscious inclusion of partnership-themed stories, encouragement of, pra- of uh, creativity as a daily practice, and so on. It's really quite inspiring, so I encourage you to check it out in more detail if that is of interest to you. So now, taking the partnership family out into the world. Okay, besides helping your own family become more caring and empathetic and a model of the society we want to build, creating a partnership family at home has even bigger effects out to the world. Studies show that early childhood experiences and observations strongly affect the kinds of citizens we become and the kinds of leaders we choose. Brains shaped by domination parenting tend to prefer authoritarian leaders who wield power over others in the top-down, fear-based ways they experienced in childhood. By contrast, brains shaped by partnership parenting are drawn to leaders who empower others and champion peace, justice, and enabling people to fully develop and contribute to the common good. Healthy democracy requires citizens who empathize with others you know, they, they can see issues from more than one angle and they conceptualize relationships of interdependence and mutual, mutuality. And these capacities are fostered by partnership parenting. Additionally, domination style parenting causes childhood stresses that often lead to behavioral, cognitive, emotional, and physical health issues that are enormously costly to society. Domination style parenting has been linked to violence and all its economic and social costs as children act out the dynamics of abuse and power over, you know, normalized in domination system families. Children raised in these domination system families are not well prepared to take on the jobs available in our 21st century economy, right? The age of robotics and AI kind of like doing the mediocre level of human thinking, it's going to require uniquely human capacities that, that the robots can't do, right? Our care and our empathy, creativity, teamwork, appreciation for diversity. So a partnership family can help address these, can also help address issues of racism. Racism is clearly a dominator style form of oppression where people with lighter skin receive benefits and privileges that people with darker skin do not. In fact, these privileges often come at the expense of people of color. So Patricia Hill Collins illustrated how the ideal of the nuclear family, which can often be modeled in a dominator-style family, is used to maintain white supremacy. This is a quote. Racial ideologies that portray people of color as intellectually underdeveloped, uncivilized children, require parallel ideas that construct whites as intellectually mature, civilized adults. When applied to race, family rhetoric that deems adults more developed than children and thus entitled to greater power, uses naturalized ideas about age and authority to legitimate racial hierarchy, end quote. So, you know, when you're developing a partnership family, that emphasis on egalitarianism, caring, and empathy is really incompatible with a racist mindset. So to wrap up today's episode of Rebel Mothers, we explored Rianne Eisler's groundbreaking concepts of dominator and partnership societies and then applied them to our own families. Eisler's work goes beyond critiquing oppressive systems. It offers actionable solutions that empower us to instigate genuine change, even within our own family units. 
we talked about the distinctions between dominator and partnership societies, recognizing the power of partnership values like equality, care, and empathy. By embracing Eisler's vision of partnership families where respect, shared responsibilities, and nurturing autonomy prevail, we can contribute to a brighter future, right? fostering a society where compassion and equality are the guiding principles. This transformation starts within our homes, but its ripple effects extend far beyond, really shaping the world that we aspire to create. Stay tuned for more empowering stories and insightful discussions in future episodes of Rebel Mothers. Remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to spread the message far and wide. Learn more at suzyfishleader.com. And thank you for being part of the motherhood revolution.